Luke chapter 2 in your Bibles, please, this morning. Verses 41 through 52. We are going to be leaving Luke some as we uh, understand the period of time between Jesus' infancy and the start of his ministry. That is what is covered in verses 41 to 52. However, we need to go outside of Luke in order to understand all the nuances of his life. Outside of various church traditions, there is actually very little written in history or in scriptures about the childhood of Jesus Christ. We can speculate on various reasons why this might be, and church tradition has many things to say about Jesus' life, most of which seem quite inauthentic, more or less uh, exemplifying uh, superstition than anything else. But one of perhaps the most reasonable considerations as to why there's not much in the scriptures about Jesus' childhood is because the childhood really wasn't the purpose of his coming. It was a means to an end. It was a means to him becoming an adult so that he could do what God had chosen him to do. Certainly Jesus' birth matters, right? Jesus' birth matters because in the virgin birth we find prophecy fulfilled. In his birth we see dozens of prophecies fulfilled. We find the theological basis for Jesus' ability as both God and man to legally be able to redeem mankind from sin in the nature of his birth. Certainly Jesus' earthly ministry, which began about the age of 30, is important. For within those three or so years, we find his essential teachings, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. But that in-between period, there's not too much recorded about that. And we're going to cover what is recorded this morning and learn a few practical lessons from it. Catholic tradition, in particular, has Jesus doing many traditions or many miracles as a child. This is very unlikely because when we get to the book of John and Jesus is in Cana of Galilee and he does the miracle of turning the water into wine, it says this was the first of miracles. So it's very unlikely that the Catholic tradition of Jesus Christ doing many miracles as a child is valid, simply from a biblical context. There are a few things, however, that we do know about his childhood, and we're going to talk about those this morning. Here in Luke chapter 2, look with me at verse 41. The Bible says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. Now in our text in Luke, we jump immediately from... 40 or so days, two months old, 40, 40 to 60 days after his birth, when he is in the temple being, being consecrated. Of course, eight days is circumcision. After 40 days, he's clean, and the mother, or the mother is clean, excuse me, and then they would go and they would do a sacrifice, and, and uh, in the temple, they would dedicate him. But then it says they leave, and then we jump directly to his 12th year in Luke. There are, however, several other events that take place between these two benchmarks, which I would like us to consider. And so you are in Luke. I, I'm going to encourage you. It will be up on the screen if you don't want to turn, but we'll spend some time in Matthew 2. And I'll encourage you, if you'd like to, to turn there to Matthew chapter 2. And we will consider the other things that took place between Jesus's um, infancy, about 40 days after his birth, and then into this point that we see in Luke where he's 12 years old. In verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 2, we find this. 
Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. The text reminds us that these events took place during the time of a leader in Israel named Herod. This would have been Herod the Great. Uh, we do not have sufficient time today to expound upon all that Herod was as a leader. Those of you who were, during, were there for our Tuesday evening intertestamental period class, where we talked through all of the events that took place between Malachi and Matthew, technically Malachi and Luke, and, and we talked through all of that history and all that God was doing in that time and, and where uh, that time fulfills the prophecies of Daniel, if you remember all of that, you learned a little bit about Herod. And what you learned about Herod was that this man was extremely proud and he knew how to play everybody. He, he was a, 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 a schmoozer. And he could get what he wanted. And he was also extremely violent and extremely jealous. He did not want anyone to compete for his authority. He did not want anyone to challenge him. And anyone that did challenge him died. Kind of like some politicians today. And so we have this scenario where there's this man, Herod. And he's ruling over the Jews. And after Jesus' birth, the text tells us, during the reign of Herod, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem looking for Jesus and proclaiming him to be the king of the Jews. They say that they knew this because they saw a star in the east. The idea here is that they saw an indication in the night sky that revealed Messiah had been born. And the question, of course, is what does this mean? As we look back in history, the history of the East, that would have been the area surrounding Babylon, we find magicians, soothsayers, and astrologers were quite prevalent. Now today, we do not often regard astrology as being any sort of valid science uh, for one of two reasons. We consider that there, you know, we consider things such as horoscopes and declare them to be little more than frauds playing off of people's superstitions. Or we regard some element of supernaturalism which rests outside of the bounds of Scripture and is likely demonic. And, and indeed today, that's what most of astrology has become. It's, it's demonic or it's fraudulent. However, there was a time, as we find from history, where the reading of the signs and the stars was a true and legitimate thing. We could rightly call it today a science. It seems as one looks into it that God had chosen the stars as a particular form of communication with mankind. It's one of those fascinating things that the constellations have the same names and shapes in nearly every culture around the world. That though all of these cultures developed under separate circumstances, if they looked up in the night sky, they would see the constellations in, in, in the same way with many of them. Something that indicates that the constellations likely were established before the dispersion at Babel and were likely designated by God in some way. Now, th there are several resources out there that you can look into if you're ever interested, and I can give you them at another time if you're interested in looking into maybe this a little bit more. But it's quite possible that God chose the constellations to be, if we might call it, a wordless book to teach some things about him. And it would seem as though there were men in the East, well 
first in the art of reading the stars, of understanding things based upon the heavens. And they noticed a star appear that indicated that the Messiah had been born in Israel. And this, of course, brings us to the next question. Uh, how and why were Eastern astrologers familiar with Messianic prophecy, familiar with the particular indication of the star, and why would they even care? And the closest Bible prophecy that we have to this concept of a star, which might have been the basis for these magi and their remarks, magi meaning teacher in Eastern civilizations, was found in a prophecy given by Balaam, in fact, in Numbers 24, 17. And Balaam said this, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy the children of Sheth. This is about the closest we have in the Bible to any prophecy of a star. And I would say that it's a pretty weak link. I don't see a lot there. So I'm not saying this is what they were, this is what they were coming to, but this is about the closest we've got in prophecy. The whole concept of reading the stars is one that's foreign to our understanding, and so all the promises and the knowledge that's rooted in that art cannot necessarily be discerned. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what they were looking for. I don't know how this worked. We could talk about various concepts of astrology and how it might work. For insight, however, into where they came from, why they were doing this, why they were even looking for this star, and how they knew what that star meant, we need go back no farther than Daniel. Daniel was a young man when he was taken to Babylon, if you recall. He was taken in the first deportation of the Jews, 605 B.C. The first chapters of Daniel recall an event where the king of Babylon, named Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream that greatly troubled him. He consults with all of his wise men, and none of them are able to interpret that dream. Nebuchadnezzar is furious, so furious, in fact, that he commands all of the wise men of the land to be destroyed. Now, Daniel hears of this and asks that he might be able to consult with Jehovah God to see if God would give him the interpretation of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar allows this, gives leave to Daniel. God gives Daniel the dream and its interpretation, which then Daniel gives to the king. And for this, Daniel became a prominent man in the kingdom. And in fact, we read in Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, that he was made the master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Which means a man that fears Jehovah God, perhaps better than almost any other man in Old Testament record, is now the head of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers in the most powerful empire in the world. And one of the most advanced, too, if you think of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, Seven Wonders of the World, an advanced civilization. Now, those of you who understand the character of Daniel, as I mentioned, think about that with me. Daniel was a righteous man. Consider the words of Ezekiel. God speaking through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14, 14. God is telling Israel that he's going to judge them, specifically Jerusalem. And he says in Ezekiel 14, 14, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, that would be Jerusalem, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord. Recall when Abraham was talking to God about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he got down to just ten. If there were but 
10 righteous people in the city. Would you spare the city? God says, I'd spare it for 10. He goes and he doesn't find 10. He destroys the city, but he takes those who are righteous out of the city. God is saying that is how bad Jerusalem is. And notice the three people he uses to say, even if these righteous men were in the city, I wouldn't spare the city. Noah, Daniel, and Job. Interestingly enough, Daniel was alive at this time. Daniel was a contemporary of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was by the river Kibar in Babylon, the, the empire, but not in the city. Daniel was over in the city of Babylon, of, of Babylon itself, in the capital there. And even during his lifetime, God said, when, when God was thinking of the righteous people that he could list, he used Daniel's name. This man was the chief magician and astrologer for decades not just in the empire of Babylon, but when it converted over to the Medo-Persian empire, he was still there. You can perhaps imagine what his understudies might have learned. You can perhaps imagine all that Daniel would have taught them about God, about prophecy, about Messiah. By all indications, these men had been waiting in anticipation for this star to arise that would indicate to them that the king of the Jews, the promised Messiah, who would be their king as well, because prophecy tells us that salvation would go to all the earth, would come. And, and though they call him the king of the Jews, notice what they came to do. They came to worship him. Kings can be worshipped, and that's certainly true. But it's likely that they understood this child to be coming as the king of the Jews, but far more than that, right? Right? the king of all who would receive him. Now, the final question that we ask in regard to this just kind of foundational work, how many wise men were there, right? Tradition says three because we will find that they bring three gifts. But the Bible doesn't say how many there were. It's church tradition. It's not clearly stated in the Bible. It could have been three. It could have been ten. It could have been thirty. We know that they brought three gifts. Well, Verses 3 and 4 tell us this. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where the Christ should be born. Herod was a flatterer. We mentioned that already. He was consumed with power. He admitted no competition to his rule. But he was also very knowledgeable of Jewish custom. He was an Edomite. And if you look into intertestamental period history, the Edomites had been subdued by the Jews and made to submit themselves to circumcision and made to learn the law of God. So this man, he was embittered against the Jews, no doubt. He did not like the Jews, no doubt, but he knew Jewish law and custom. He knew this stuff. And the text tells us that he was greatly troubled by this prophecy and he inquires of his authority, the chief priests and the scribes. And now notice this. He demands where the child should be born. The Magi come looking for the king of the Jews. They said the king of the Jews, and Herod said, where is the Christ to be born? He called him the Messiah. They called him the king of the Jews. He knew exactly who they were looking for. He knew biblical prophecy. Herod demands where Christ should be born. The priests and the scribes gave a proper answer. Verses 5 and 6. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among princes of Judah. 
For out of thee shall come a governor, one that shall, or that shall rule my people Israel. They quote directly from Micah 5.2, a prophecy of Christ which states that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Herod made this demand as to where the child is to be found. He, he calls the wise men and he tells them this is where the child is to be found. And this is what I've, what I've learned. And then notice his craftiness here, his flattery. Verses 7 and 8. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star had appeared. How long ago did this star appear? How long ago was this Messiah born? And then he sent them to Bethlehem, the text tells us, and he said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. So the wise men of Herod, the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, discern it, uh, uh, Herod discerns excuse me, from the wise men when the star had appeared, apparently connecting the appearance of the star with the day of Christ's birth. And then he tells them what he knows, that the child was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He directs them to go there, and then he asks them, when you find him, bring word back. Bring word back where he is so that I can worship him too. Now, we'll find that this request is deceit, which is par for the course with Herod. He doesn't want to find him to worship him. He wants to find him to kill him. But the wise men don't know that. Herod's a good flatterer. That's, that's where it's left. So verses 9 and 10 tell us, When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now from this we understand a few things. First, the star was not there for their entire journey. Because it says the star then appeared again. And so the star had not been there for the entire journey. They saw the star. They said, I know what that star is, and they traveled. The star reappeared after they had inquired with Herod. If the star had been there the whole time, they would have had no need to go to Herod to find him, right? They would have just followed the star to him, to wherever it led him, led them. But they had to go to Herod because they knew that he had been born in Israel, and so they inquire of the king because they probably assumed, hey, this Christ child has been born. Everybody knows about him. Where is he? Second, we understand that they did not arrive anywhere near the day of Jesus' birth. Every year at Christmas, we see the, the manger, and we see the nativity, and we see Jesus lying in a manger with the wise men and the shepherds. The wise men weren't there that night. Not even close. Not even close. Nor were they in Bethlehem when they found him. They didn't find him in Bethlehem. They found him in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. Prove it. I'll prove it. Church tradition, we find the Magi present when Christ lay in the manger the night of his birth. Yet the narrative of Matthew 2 contradicts in every detail. It is not even possible that the Magi arrived during the 40 days that Jesus was in Bethlehem while Mary was being purified during Jesus, before Jesus' dedication. If he had been in Bethlehem, first, why would the star have appeared again? They could have gone to Bethlehem, asked around. They would have found him easily. The star didn't need to direct them if Micah 5.2 is directing them. But they rejoice when the star again appears and went before them. And this certainly was because Jesus was not in Bethlehem. He was in Nazareth. Now, after Jesus was born, remember, he was circumcised. On the eighth day, he was circumcised. Mary was ceremonially purified. They went to the temple in Jerusalem. Then, according to Luke 2.39, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And if this... 
is not enough that there was only 40 days where they were in Bethlehem and then they returned to Nazareth. And, and uh, if, that, if that's not enough for us to understand, we'll, we'll dig a little bit deeper and we'll see it even more. As we continue in verses 11 and 12, we see this. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed unto their own country another way. The Magi come to the house. Do you notice it says house there? Not stable. Come to the house. And the mother and the young child are there. The Bible says the Magi worshipped him as God and gave him treasures. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts of extreme value, reflecting not simply gifts given to an earthly king, but more so the idea of an offering unto the Lord. More so the idea of a sacrifice. Gifts given to God. Worship given to God. It, if it was not enough that the shepherds worshipped him on the day of his birth, if it was not enough that Simeon proclaimed him to be God on the day of his dedication, now three Gentile wise men have come from afar, having seen the unquestionable signs of God's Messiah in the heavens. They brought offerings of extreme value. They bowed and worshipped the true and living God who had been made a man to redeem all mankind. Now, following their journeys, it appeared that they had every intention of going back and telling Herod that they had found the Christ. They had no reason to assume Herod's motives were false, but then God appeared to them in a dream, and he warned them not to return to Herod, but to depart toward the east another way. So they go another way. And verse, verses 13 and 15 say this, When they had, were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and, there, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. The angel tells Joseph Herod will seek to kill Jesus in a jealous rage and commands Joseph to take his family into Egypt until God tells him to come back. By God's grace, the family has just received all the funding necessary to do that, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They just received all of the funding necessary to go down to Egypt, to live in Egypt, and to get back. And so they leave for Egypt, and the scriptures tell us that they, led, that they fled in haste, that they fled by night to go into Egypt while the Magi went another way. And they would remain there until Herod died. Herod died in the year 4 AD. Jesus somewhere probably around four years old. Now Matthew quotes a prophecy of God calling his son out of Egypt in Hosea 11.1. Attributed there to Israel, having God having called Israel out of Egypt, but applied to Messiah in an instance of what we call dual prophetic fulfillment. We'll, we've talked about that before. We can't get into it today. We just don't have time. And then as we continue reading in the text, and we'll put it all together in just a moment, so be patient with me. Verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation, and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. 
Herod is furious when he finds out the wise men had gone another way when they had mocked him. He goes into a rage and he kills all the male children in the entire coast of Israel, including Bethlehem, from two years and younger, which indicates to us that the star had been seen by the wise men some two years prior. It takes a while to travel from Babylon to Jerusalem. You, have to, you can't go straight through the desert. You'd have to go around following the river, the Tigris and the Euphrates, up and then down. It would have taken a while. Jesus was likely then one to two years old when these events took place, not a newborn. Matthew connects this event to the prophecy made in Jeremiah 31.15, which speaks of Rachel weeping for her children. Incidentally, Rachel's two children were Joseph and Benjamin. However, Bethlehem was not a city of Joseph or Benjamin, was it? Bethlehem was a city of Judah. That's one of Leah's children. So why would Rachel be the one to weep for her children as Bethlehem and the surrounding area is destroyed? Uh, Well, as we look back in the scriptures... Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. And so it makes sense that Rachel would be the one, as Bethlehem is destroyed and in the surrounding area, that, that, that she would be the one cited as weeping for her children as she's the one that was buried in there. Leah was buried with Jacob in the family tomb. Rachel was not because Leah was the, was the official wife, was, was the one regarded by God. So the imagery that, that Rachel, a woman who came to rest in that area, would vicariously sorrow for those likely hundreds of mothers whose small children would be killed by the wrath and jealousy of a wicked ruler is the imagery there in Jeremiah. Uh, now, we hasten to finish this chapter and move back to our context. But do you see? Well, we'll, we'll pick up there in just a moment. Let's, let's, let's finish up our context here. 19 to 23. When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Um, I already read that, didn't I? Double my notes here. I did already respond. I guess we've got a little bit of, of overlap here. That's fine. Uh, but when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For they are... Oh, okay, no, 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 because this is, this is afterwards. I'm sorry. Um, they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea, in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So Herod dies. Jesus is somewhere four, five years old. Joseph and Mary and Jesus return to Nazareth. Jesus is probably now, um, well, anywhere, maybe as much as six, depending on how old he was when the, the wise men came. And we pick up in, in Luke 24 in just a moment, but let me kind of solidify this idea here. Why were the Magi likely not in Bethlehem? They were likely not in Bethlehem because the star led them again instead of them just going to Bethlehem. Because when, they, when Herod inquired diligently of the wise men, the wise men said the star had appeared two years earlier by the time they had gotten there and had, had entered Jerusalem. It's most likely that that star appeared at the time of Jesus' birth, and that is why Herod killed every child two years and younger. 
instead of just going around and killing anyone that had been born recently. They had the time to inquire of Herod. Now remember, Jesus was only in Bethlehem for 40 days before he went and he was dedicated in the temple. If Herod knew of the Christ child and he was looking for the Christ child, when the Christ child entered Jerusalem to be dedicated in the temple, most likely Herod would have found him first. But there was no crossing of paths. There was, there was no problem there. And recall that after the Magi come and they leave, Joseph immediately gets a dream that says, flee to Egypt. He can't flee to Egypt if he still has to wait to dedicate his child. He can't flee in the dead of night and go to Egypt if his child still has to go through the process of circumcision and dedication. It seems very likely that Jesus was born, circumcised, dedicated in the temple. They went back to live in Nazareth. And, and the star appeared when he was born. And most likely, a couple of years later, the Magi arrive, seek him out, find him, not in Bethlehem, where Micah 5.2 would have said he was born, but where the star told them to go, which was Nazareth. They enter into the house where the young child and his mother are. They worship him as king. They leave. God tells Joseph in a dream, you need to leave. Herod's going to seek the child's life. They're now funded. They go down to Egypt until the time of Herod's death. And then they return. Jesus is four to five years old when they return. And then they go back to Nazareth and live in Nazareth until we pick up in verse 41 of Luke chapter 2 with Jesus being 12 years old. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast, and when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it, but they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance, and when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. Joseph and Mary, Jesus is now 12 years old. Joseph and Mary bring him with them to the feast of the Passover, which there were three feasts every year that men had to go to Jerusalem for. They return. Jesus does not go with them. At the end of the first day, at the end of the day of traveling, they're looking around for Jesus. Jesus is not there. They become concerned, and they realize he's not with them, so they turn and head back to Jerusalem looking for them. Remember, a day there, which would mean a day back, right? A full day to get back to Jerusalem. And, and, and Jesus was a 12-year-old boy in Jerusalem by himself. Verses 46 to 49. And it came to pass that after three days, right? So a day there, a day back, and then a day of looking. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, my father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto thee, How is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? Jesus is found in the temple conversing with the doctors of law, the scribes, the Pharisees, the wisest of the wise, of, uh, the most knowledgeable in Israel about the law. And they marveled at his understanding and, that, and, and of his answers. He understood this stuff. No doubt their conversation revolved around the events of the Passover, since it was during the Passover feast. It would make sense, right? 
Jesus is the Passover that would come. He would die on Passover. Passover is important to him. And no doubt that they were conversing about the theological expectations of, of the Passover. When they finally found him on the third day, Mary asked why he stayed, knowing that they would be terrified for his safety. He didn't really understand this. Why would you be afraid? Why would you even seek me? Don't you know I've got work to do? If Jesus was God in flesh, what was the danger, right? If he will give his angels charge over him, as Satan will even testify from the Old Testament scriptures during his temptation in the wilderness, what, what, do, you, what do you have to fear, Mom and Dad? If Jesus' purpose was to proclaim his Father's word, where else should he be but in the temple of the living God proclaiming his word? Now, I don't know for sure. My, my sanctified imagination has been pretty active of late. But I wonder if Jesus' actions here are a reflection of passion. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been impassioned, but you've had to restrain? Have you ever seen uh, someone doing a poor job and you do that job well and, and said, man, if, if that were in my hands, I could do something great with it. And you're just itching to take it out of their hands because you, you know what you're doing and they don't. Or you are listening to a conversation, overhearing two people talk, and you just want to jump in because you're passionate about that particular topic around this time of year. Every four years, that can happen to some of us with politics, right? And you just want to jump in and say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Have you ever just looked over a sea of lost people and longed for their souls and wanted to just cry out and say, listen to the solution? I imagine that Jesus may have had that kind of a moment. It's just my imagination. He spent a week looking at these people, observing a tradition which even the doctors of the land don't really understand. They're observing the Passover. He is the Passover. He is that. He's that lamb. He's going to be in 20 years slain for them. And they don't, they, they, they don't get it. You might imagine the fire in his heart over that. His parents leave and his passion overflows and he just remains to speak to these guys. He finally has a moment, right? He doesn't have somebody dragging him around anymore. He can just kind of do his own thing and he, he's going to talk to the doctors and the lawyers. His intent is not malicious, uh, obviously not sinful. Our Lord did not sin. Uh, if he had ever once sinned, then he is not worthy to be our Savior. He looked at his mom and he said, Mom, there's so much work to be done. But though his passion was right, his timing was, was not. There's an important lesson for us to remember as well. Sometimes our passion can be great, but we haven't yet found God's timing. And we need to be patient and wait for it. Verses 50 to 52. And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. The parents didn't get this. They're not communicating real well at the moment. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus' parents didn't fully understand. He is now told, no, that now's not the time. You need to submit. Which, by the way, might explain that when Jesus is in Cana of Galilee before his first miracle, he looks to his mom before he does it. Why? His mom had put a restriction on him here at age 12. No, it's not your time. Jesus said, yes, ma'am. 
I believe in Cana of Galilee, when, when Mary looks at him and says, and then looks at the others and says, do what he tells you to do, that's Mary saying, I'm, re I'm, re I'm removing the restriction I put on you at 12. It's now your time. Again, it's an interpretive belief there. Not, not explicitly stated in the scriptures. So Jesus goes back with his parents. He's in Nazareth. He continues to increase in wisdom and favor with God and man until the age of 30 when he will begin his earthly ministry. Now, as we wrap up our exposition today, I, I am a bit torn. There's so much that could be said, but at the risk of the series becoming bogged down in an unhealthy way, we're, we're, not, going to, we're not going to rest heavily on anything that... I could have done a couple more sermons here, but I just don't want to get bogged down. We're, we've already gotten semi-bogged down in Luke uh, chapters 1 and 2, and we need to hasten on. We've learned this morning, in passing, of Jesus' deity and his majesty, of Jesus' ministry to the Gentile world as well as the Jews, as represented by the Magi, his ministry to the Gentile world, to God's divine protection over Jesus, which we could talk about, to the necessity of God's will within the context, not only of our passion to do it, but of God's timing for us to do it, of his preparation, of his desire. But I'd like for us in our application this morning to reconsider the events of Matthew 2.16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time when he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Here we see a situation where God, hundreds of years prior, prophesied of an event which would be a signification of Messiah's advent. Jeremiah prophesied that something would happen around the time of Messiah, and it would be weeping. And it's a horrific event. And the question that is asked when one considers terrible things such as these is simply, why would God allow it? We, we all see what's going on here, right? This is not just an instance of a bad thing happening. This is an instance of God looking into the future and saying, as a sign of Messiah's coming, there will be death in Israel. A man will kill babies. And God says, this is a part of the coming of Messiah. This is a part of your knowing him. Not, not, it's not Messiah's fault. It's not Messiah doing it, right? But this is a, a sign that Messiah has come. And so, so what does this mean? How do we reconcile this? How can our God watch as evil atrocities occur in the world? And as we consider, consider this circumstance, we'll, we'll use it to help us not only to understand our God, but also to understand the world in which we live. So I'm going to take you through a few application points this morning about this. Because we live in an evil time. There's a lot of evil going on in the world. And that question of why comes up in so many contexts. And we're going to talk about it again next week in our evening service as we consider the death of David's son that he had with Bathsheba because of adultery. How could God allow an innocent child to die as a result of David's sin? We're going to talk about that next week. So we're, we're, we're going through these difficult circumstances where we're trying to reconcile the goodness of God and the plan of God in the midst of man's suffering. And point number one that I'd like us to consider is this. Men have always been willing to advance themselves at the cost of others. This is a sin nature thing. This isn't a God thing. This is a man thing. This is our problem, not God's problem. This is our sin. This is not God. Consider this tragedy from a human perspective 
and then follow it through to a leadership perspective. The Bible teaches that there's none righteous, that we are all sinners, and that our natural bent is toward sin. Psalm 14.3, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Psalm 53.3, every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Sounds pretty familiar. The Bible is talking about God looking down upon humanity in both of these passages. And in that context, we read these two verses. It is not a mystery why the theory of Darwinian evolution is so compelling for people, is it? Certainly, it was a theory around several thousand years before Darwin thought of it. You can read about it in the, philosoph the Greek philosophers. The concept that we came from nothing. That we're all naturalistic. The idea that the weak prey upon the strong is something baked into the human heart, into our sin nature, isn't it? That the weak prey upon the strong. The concept of personal advantage and personal gain are foundational to the human heart all the way back to Eden. All the way back to half God said. All the way back to Cain and Abel. In Eden, the serpent spoke to Eve. Yea, have God said, thou shalt not eat of every tree of the garden? In Eden, when the serpent told Eve, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Eve, the serpent said, God is trying to keep something away from you. God doesn't want you to be happy. He's holding you back from fulfilling your fullest potential. God is in your way. God is in the way of your potential. You'll be as God's God knows if you eat of this. It's the very essence of that which plagues our hearts as humans and the very essence of that which plagues our society today. That as people drift farther from the truth of God's word and churches forsake the essential message of the gospel, we now find ourselves in a society where people will advance their own cause at the expense of others, refusing even to consider the natural dignity of humanity. We recognize the dignity of humanity because of the image of God and man. As men drift further from the enlightenment of God's word, from the gospel, that dignity goes out the window and it becomes the strong win, the weak lose. The gospel reveals every man to be made in the image of God and thus worthy of respect and dignity. The depraved hearts of men see only inconvenience. Whether we speak of oppressive slavery, where men and women around the world have been counted as less than human in order to, uh, to justify the cruelty that's done toward them. Whether we speak of the industrial revolution of Britain and the United States, where uh, the wealthy exploited the needs and the weaknesses of the poorer class to advance their own greeds and wealth. And there were many good men too. Whether we speak of the 40 to 50 million babies murdered around the world in the name of convenience through abortion. Whether we speak of the civil war in our nation right now between the communist group known as Black Lives Matter and local law enforcement. In each case, we find the problem to be an outworking of rejection of basic biblical truths that men's lives have a natural dignity because they're made in the image of God. 
And men have always been willing to advance themselves at the cost of others. This is a part of the sin nature that is within us. Second point that you need to understand about, and this is a sin problem, not a God problem. The indefensible and innocent always suffer at the hands of unrighteous power. It's important as we consider this point that you understand something about leadership. Something that is nearly lost upon an entire generation of citizens of the Western civilization. A couple of weeks ago in our evening service, we recognized the greatness of David's leadership. And we recognized that his greatness was not due to his power, not due to his military victories, but it was due not to his wealth. It was due... His greatness as a leader was connected to his willingness to humble himself and align with truth. Now, as I say this, what do I mean by a great leader? A great leader is a leader under whom the people are happy and content. That doesn't mean the people are always prosperous, but they are people who can operate honestly and peaceably. That's what the scriptures define. Under great leaders, the people rejoice. A truly great leader, whether we talk about business or politics or religion, are leaders who lead having identified and thus governing by the principles of truth. Honesty, integrity, human dignity, humility. And the closer a leader comes to those truths, those divine truths, whether or not they're a believer, the closer they get to those truths in his character and actions, the happier the people are. So the Bible says in Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Now, on the scale of greatness, we cannot say that every great man has operated under the realization of God and his authority all the time. But they have, without fail, recognized the principles of righteousness rooted in the reality that there's something greater than themselves by which they govern. And because they operate on these divine truths and principles, divine principles of morality and ethics, they can become great leaders whose followers are happy. And this is one of the great great turmoils of this election year. Can a man or woman, regardless of what they say they believe or claim they will do, truly be a great leader when they operate completely unmoored from any principles, much less principles of divine truth? And if we believe our Bibles, well, no, they can't. They can't. When the unprincipled are in power, the people mourn, and the innocent and indefensible always suffer. There's a German philosopher in the 1800s by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche was a, a uh, completely antichrist man. In fact, he actually wrote a book called The Antichrist, where he wished that he was that, and where he considered the reality of the human condition desiring to cast it off from God. In that book, The Antichrist, as well as many of his other works, he expressed his hatred for the weak spirit of Christianity, which was expressed through peace and compromise. He said, that is weakness, and it is nothing but weakness. And in this book, he introduced a concept called the will to power, which effectively defines good as everything that our Savior Jesus Christ is not. He said, good is all that heightens the feelings of power, the will to power, and power itself in a man. That happiness is the feeling that power increases and that a resistance has been overcome. He said, all that is bad is all that proceeds from weakness. 
He preached that the weak shall perish and that sympathy for the ill and the weak is more harmful than any other vice. So he concluded that Christianity is, in effect, the scourge of humanity, designed to hold humanity back from its will to power and therefore from its greatest potential. Now, I speak of this man for one reason. It is to help us understand that the end result of rejection of truth is that the powerful, disconnected from the principles of truth, will always bring suffering to the innocent and the indefensible. That the will to power brings about a desire to stand upon the bodies of others to get where you want to go. Herod had that will to power, and thus these children suffered. This was not God. As a matter of fact, this is everything that Christ and God is not. It is a rejection of everything that God is that brought Herod to the place where he killed those babies. It is a rejection of divine truth. And where the innocent and indefensible suffer in our world, it is on the basis of rejection of divine truth. It is on the basis of this will to power. It is on the basis of the weak weak are dominated by the strong. It is on the basis of everything that evolutionary principles teach. And by the way, Friedrich Nietzsche was one of the foremost people that Hitler cited as his influence. Not surprising, right? Not at all surprising. Herod was an evil man. He was a man whose goal was power at any cost. He would say whatever he needed to say. He would do whatever he needed to do. He would lie, he would cheat, he would steal, and he didn't care. As long as he tickled your ears and got you to do what he wanted, he was happy. And then when he got what he wanted, he didn't care. He would do what he wanted. History bears out that he was a chameleon, willing to change into anything to gain power. He was a flatterer. He was a con man. Yet history calls him Herod the Great. Title he gave himself, by the way. Yes, he built a grand temple. Ironic, isn't it? He built the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple. Yes, he maintained order in Judea during a turbulent time. God used him. God used him. But in his quest for power, because he was threatened by a young child who was prophesied to be the next king in Israel, he was willing to slaughter likely hundreds of innocent baby boys two years and under to get what he wanted. And this is the fruit of unrighteous power every time. This is the fruit of unprincipled power. The indefensible and the innocent will suffer. Third and finally... And this is the point where it all comes together. God's allowance of sinful actions and sinful people never implies approval or apathy. God is not approving of sin just because he allows it. God doesn't, it's not that God doesn't care just because he's looking down and seeing it. It does, however, provide a contrast. That these things happen in the world leads some to insist that God is somehow either in approval or that he just doesn't care. He's either the great clockwinder or he is standing up there laughing as all of this happens. But neither of these charges can be laid at the feet of our God, and let's consider why. How is it that God's allowance of evil does not amount to approval or to apathy? The Bible teaches that man has been given a free will, and as such, God has given us the privilege of exercising our will either for good or for evil, either for God or against God. The only way that God in his justice could disallow evil men to perform evil deeds would be to destroy them, which he certainly could do. But here's the problem with that. 
he destroyed us, he couldn't redeem us. Right? The day Adam and Eve fell to sin, God could have said, tainted, and kicked us to the curb. And by the way, if I were the creator, that's what I would have done. Start over. Make them do what I want them to do. But God didn't. Nor did God force us. He didn't turn us into automatons and robots. Why? Because hidden in this gem of free will that allows man to do evil is the part of free will that allows man to exercise himself unto God. Hidden in this gem of allowing men to perform evil is the opportunity for man to be redeemed. God loves us too much to destroy us. And so, God allows men to have a free will and thus allows us to pursue evil, which is naturally in our hearts, allows that evil to exist exclusively so that man might also have the free will with which to accept his grace and mercy. Without a free will with which men may pursue evil, man could not likewise be free to pursue God's mercy. And so we find that it is God's mercy which allows evil, not through his desire or through his approval, but through his desire that those evil men would be reconciled to himself and thus become righteous through his son. Evil is not a sign that God doesn't care. It's a sign that he cares enough to not destroy us. Even if it means he must endure that rebellion against him and watch men destroy themselves. We know from all over the Old Testament that innocent blood cries out to God. We know from the book of Revelation that the martyrs cried out saying, God, how long before you vindicate us? God hears the cries of the innocent and his ears are not deaf to it. He endures it every day for the sake of those who have yet to be saved. That's mercy in my book. That's tremendous grace. Evil is an extension of man's rejection of the truths of God. See that evil is synonymous with mankind, not with God. The thoughts of man are evil continually. That is the grace of God which restrains his righteous judgment against us, which is coming one day for those who have not accepted Christ as their Savior. But in this time, that man might have a chance to be redeemed. And that's really the point here. Here's the contrast. Here's the lesson. An evil man, driven by all that is devilish in this world, lying to the wise men who came to worship the Christ, and then by the will to power, by insistence upon taking that which he wants at the expense of the weak, indefensible, and innocent, destroys lives lest his rule be challenged. Satan wanted the gospel crushed. And he used men's influence... Men influenced by a philosophy of the will to power to do it. And indeed, Satan is still using these same evil philosophies to attempt to thwart God. Where the will to power exists, where a man is willing to forsake divine principle in favor of power and authority, the spirit of Antichrist is working. But do you see the contrast? Herod may have been the first after Christ's death, but he would not be excuse me, the first after Christ's birth, but he would not be the last tool used by Satan to attempt to destroy the hope of salvation through the gospel. 
and such evil and violence which causes us even these many years later to grieve over such senseless destruction of the innocent serves to show us the exact reason why that child had to come, why Christ had to come, why we needed him, why we need him today. Herod didn't just fail at destroying the Christ by God's intervention, but Herod proved why Christ was there to begin with, why he was so needed. His actions validated the very need for Messiah. And this message is summed up beautifully in Psalm 2, verses 2 to 6. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that would be Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision, confusion. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill in Zion. God says, you can try all you want to thwart my purposes, but it will not be done. The kings of the earth can pursue the will to power at the expense of the innocent and the indefensible and the weak, but God is on the side of right. He knows what's going on. He will be vindicated one day. The judgment is coming. We don't have to worry. We grieve, but we don't have to worry when we look at these people and their power and their lies and their scheming and their wickedness and putting themselves into places of power and position and authority. We don't have to worry because God looks down from heaven and he says, I will laugh at them, at their feeble attempts to thwart my purposes, to thwart my truth, to thwart my anointing. He says, yet I have set my king up in my holy hill. There's nothing you can do about it, kings of the earth. God has a glorious habit of working evil out, man's evil out to his own good, doesn't he? Such was the case in the days of Herod, who slaughtered the innocent in order to destroy Christ. Such has been the case since then, and such is the case today. And this knowledge confronts us with questions. That first and most important question, have you been freed from the bondage of sin? Have you come to the point in your life where you've recognized you are a sinner, that you cannot get yourself to heaven, that there is nothing in your own heart that is right and that is good, and have humbled yourself before the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he is alive today, and that when he died, he died to bear your sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, saying that God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God took our sin and put it on Christ so God could take Christ's righteousness and put it on you. But you've got to receive it. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, evil exists in this world yet today because God wants all to come to him. It is long-suffering. It is not apathy. It is Patience. It is not agreement. If you haven't come to him, make today the day. As a believer, are you living under the bondage of fear and sorrow concerning evil? Are you living so distraught by the evil that is around you that you have forgotten that 
he that sitteth in the heavens is laughing. Not at what is going on, but at those who would seek to thwart him. Have you, have you forgotten that God is the ruler yet as we sang this morning and this is my father's world? Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong be oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and heaven and earth shall be won. As a believer, is there an area of your life where evil has been allowed to reign? Where your will to power has, where you have allowed just a little bit of that will to power to make you subjective in your morality? Have you allowed a little bit of situational ethics to come in where you say, I need power, I need money, I need gain, and I'm going to do it at the expense of truth? It can touch us too. We're living in a very sin-tainted world, and the philosophies of the world find themselves in the church all the time. As we consider what, what went on today, and I know I gave you a lot of information today, and then I kind of completely switched gears in the application. As we consider this, though, and it's a timely message for this time in our politics and the state that we are in, where we have two people both pursuing the will to power. Let's please God and make sure that we are on his side in these circumstances. Let's close in prayer.